You're listening to Master Photography Podcast for July 4, 2019. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to this show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I am your host, Brent Bergherm, and this time I've got two awesome people with me once again, Jenna Martin and Levi Sim. Hey, welcome to the show, guys. Hello, happy 4th of July. Yeah. So for for those of us in the U.S., of course, it's Independence Day. It's 4th of July. And I always I always liked the joke I heard. um, There was this uh, British comedian. He was like, yeah, for you guys, it's it's Independence Day. For us, it's Thanksgiving Day. So I was like, oh, <laughs> anyway, so let's get right back to it. We are continuing from last week where we started this conversation about photo jargon and just all these different things about, you know, just the lingo of photography. And we talked about different lighting scenarios, back button focus, exposing to the right, to the left, histogram ISO, aperture, shutter, all these types of things. And so we're going to continue with some other items. Before we get right back to all of those other items, we wanted to give you a few tips on photographing some fireworks. So maybe you're going to go to a fireworks display and that might be something that you want to be able to, uh, you know, feel confident in heading out there and getting some fireworks going. So uh, Levi, what would be the number one item that besides their camera, <laughs> what would be the number one <laughs> item that they want to think about when we're shooting, uh, planning to shoot fireworks? You know, if for like a classic fireworks in the sky photograph, you need something to hold your camera still. You need a, a tripod or for me, it's going to be a platypod because I can set it on a picnic table or I can tie it to a tree uh, like at this spot we used to go in in Portland to watch fireworks we sat right next to this tree and it was awesome because I could tie it to this enormous cedar tree and it wouldn't move. Awesome. And, and it, it does a great job. And there's like, there's, there's the classic fireworks in the sky photograph, but you can get so creative. Um, but if this is your first time photographing fireworks, go for the classic. Yeah, absolutely. And you made me think too, with that platypod, I just bought one a couple of weeks ago. I have yet to use it. Just unboxed it the other day. And, I think I'm going to do that this time around because where we go, there's a creek running by and it's right there in front of us. And so I'm going to get down really low to the creek and see if I can't get some of those reflections of the fireworks in the creek while it's, you know, going up above. So if I can get a nice wide angle lens, then maybe that can work out. I will see. I don't know. Yeah, so doodad number one of the week is platypod. There you go. All right. Yeah, we didn't have doodads last week since we, we were we were going so long, and we just kind of um, decided to 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 truncate it. But uh, yeah, a platypod would definitely be a good one. So Jenna, any tips or ideas on how to set up your camera? What we're looking for? Uh, any maybe there's some thoughts about even some foreground elements, or should we just zoom in? You know, on that classic shot, like Levi was saying, should we just zoom in and focus on? what we're doing with, with the bursting of the, of the fireworks. Well, I think, you know, I think like, like Levi, like Levi was saying, I think you go for the, you know, try and get the classic shot. It's kind of like go for the, the, the clear cut classic shot if you can, but this is definitely a time to experiment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, fireworks are, they're so different. And my favorite thing to do with fireworks is double exposures. Oh yeah. I love double exposures with firework shots, you know? Um, and so I, I, there's just so much you can do. I like a good long lens and then do some double exposures while I'm just getting fireworks. I love doing longer exposures where you can get all the people in the foreground. Um, I've got kids now that like watching them. So it's a lot of, you know, shots of the multiple fireworks firing where my kids will stay still while they're, <laughs> while there's multiples firing. Nice. Um, so you can get them and then get just multiple fireworks in the sky. And there are so many just great things you can do. So I would say, yeah, experiment as much as you possibly can. And by all means, if you can find a good fireworks stand, you don't necessarily have to wait until just the 4th of July. Just lit out light, get some sparklers and play with yeah. some sparkler photos with people, you know, stock up on those things. I stock up on smoke bombs this time of year and I use those all throughout the year. So nice. yeah, 4th of July, this is a good time for photographers. 
Yeah, use a get sparklers, set your shutter to 10 seconds and and fire off the flash first or second curtain. And uh, uh, if you do it first, then your your kids will be lit up as they're writing their first letter of their name and then they'll spell their name out and it'll be all dragged out. If you set your camera to second curtain or rear shutter, then you'll you'll get their name all spelled out and then the flash will go off when they're at the end of it. And kids go crazy. They get so creative once you show them this. And be careful. Be careful with teenagers because oh, they yeah. will write dirty words. <laughs> <laughs> they know they can get away with it. Uh, they will write some That's dirty true. words. I know that one of my favorite things to do is hold the sparklers out a little bit in front of my camera. I don't want them landing on my lens, of course, but letting the sparklers fall in front of my camera and shooting at that wide aperture. So it, you just get that crazy light and bokeh that comes through mm. from all the sparks. I mean, it's just, it is so much fun. I love 4th of July. I love it. Yeah, oh, yeah, that sounds good. So Levi, you said 10 seconds. Is that your go-to starting shutter for doing a standard classic fireworks uh, shot? No, I'd say that's probably a little long yeah. for the fireworks shot, but for this for the sparklers to give kids enough time to write their names, sure. you know, five or ten seconds is a pretty good way to go. Um, I'm thinking more like three to five seconds is probably better for for a streaming fireworks shot. And so with that long exposure, you're going to get the rocket going up. It's going to burst and you're going to get the streams and the longer your shutter, the longer those streams will be. And so you can, you can just play with that shutter speed to adjust that. Now you can, you'll get more color if you've got a little darker exposure too. like when, right. when those blues reds are going up, if you don't stop your aperture down a little bit, F8, F11, then uh, they're going to be bright and they're just going to be white instead of colorful. Um, so try like ISO 400 F8 and five seconds and, and use that for a start. What do you there think? There you go. Yeah. That probably goes against, you know, what you might think is conventional wisdom because we just don't think of those things as being so stinking bright, but those things right. are very bright. Yeah. And they're they're magnesium burning. It's like, it's like lightning. It's and like they the, are moving so, though. So while you have a five second exposure, any one time, you know, in, in front of that single pixel, let's call it, as you're exposing the one pixel, since the subject is moving, it doesn't have that long, but it's so bright yeah. anyway. You got to stop mm-hmm. it down so you can control that and you can keep some feel of that color coming through. Otherwise, it's just going to be a hot mess. It's all going to be blown out pure white in those areas and you're not going to have any detail. I think you're still going to have some of that, but you just want to minimize those items so you can still mm-hmm. have the texture maybe of the smoke, the the little nuanced, you know, sparkles that come out from each of those little trails. And and as you zoom into it, you can look at it and say, wow, that is that is interesting. Another thing, you know, if you're at the F8 range, you're going to get some amazing depth of field, regardless if you're missing your focus a little bit. And if you're, you know, you want to shoot at infinity. But what if you're, you know, just a tiny bit off on that infinity mark? Well, if you're at F8, you probably have enough depth of field. It's not going to make a difference. So you're yeah, still going to get that thing in focus. focus. Yeah. And, and manual focus to keep it between shots. Right. Definitely manual focus so, too. So I would, I would focus with autofocus and then switch it to manual. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. And, use the first two or three as sacrificial to, um, you know, fireworks to get your, to get your focus right. Click that button off to manual focus. Yeah. Focus on, on something on the horizon over there where your fireworks are. Yeah. And then, and then go for it. I would also use, uh, most of our cameras have an interval shooting mode for time-lapse photography. Sure. And I would just set it to the minimum interval and set it to five or eight seconds or something and, and let it go. Yeah, that sounds good. So it's, what you're saying is it's just going to keep taking pictures. And then that's where, Jenny, you mentioned double exposure. If you mm-hmm. find two that you like, bring them into Photoshop and blend those exposures together. And then you've got even more glory, basically. Well, and I, I love doing it right in camera. Yeah. Like I said, if you're, if you're taking a photo of something in the foreground and you can set your camera, a lot, a lot of cameras, if it allows it, you can set it to double exposure mode. Mine, mine has it at least. I mean, well, I shoot with the Mark IV. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe I'm being fancy. I'm being Jeff right now. Um, 
<laughs> if uh, if you um if you can set it in camera where like if my kids are standing still and they're just looking up at the fireworks, they're not really moving. And I can do multiple exposures. You know, I can do close to, I think, eight or more exposures. Nice. My my kids will just show up perfectly right there. And the fi- I just keep getting more and more and more fireworks in this single shot at the end shot. Um, so you can set it where you don't even have to do it in Photoshop. Or even if, you know, you can bring them into Photoshop later and play with them. But I love just... I love playing with them right then and there or taking a shot of the firework and then taking a shot of the, you know, your kids or your, um, a sparkler or something else different and just seeing how stuff overlaps and maybe you'll get something kind of cool. Yeah. I, I love it. Cool. Definitely. And, um, the best time to practice this is on July 3rd. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but this episode uh, releases July 4th. So exactly. So <laughs> yeah, like do not show up to the fireworks display and try to turn on your, your multiple exposure. You'll just be disappointed and then you won't have any fun <laughs> and you'll like fireworks don't last that long. Like a 10 no. minute display is really big. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time to mess around on site. No. So that's where, do what what you were suggesting, Levi, or if you don't want to use the intervalometer, just shoot like crazy. But when you bring it into Photoshop, bring those in, you know, click on both of them in Lightroom. If you're a Lightroom user, right click on it, say open as layers in Photoshop, take mm-hmm. the top layer, tell it to do a blend mode of lighten, and you're going to get that multiple exposure Excellent. technique going on there. They're also disappointingly uh, sparse. Like you. Yeah. Like a typical shot has like two bursts in it. And yeah. so combining them in Photoshop is is a fun way to look at make it look more effulgent. Exactly. Creating those composites where, you know, yeah. you've got your one main photo and then you've got ten different just you're just adding the sparks from all yeah. the ten different photos. Yeah. Uh, and it'll look pretty cool. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. So back to our jargon discussion that we had we started last week and now we're going to continue and finish up. And then this week we will have our doodads uh that we're gonna we're gonna end with as well. So Levi, the idea of chimping, help me understand uh help me understand chimping. Chimping is my favorite thing. It's <laughs> when I take a photograph and then I look at the back of the camera and go, <laughs> Wow, you do pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Only when you get a good shot, though, right? Levi, make picture. It's fun. I mean, it, it is the magic of photography in the 21st century. This is when, where I really wish we had the video going on now between our, our connections yeah. so we can actually see each other and what you're doing. Because I need you do, to do a selfie so I can post that with this episode. I just, I could, I could probably do that for you. Um, <laughs> In, you know, in, in 1995, when I was in, in high school photography classes, I made a picture. And then three days later, when I had class again, I developed the picture. Yeah. And then later that day during lunch, when I when I could sneak into the darkroom, I printed the picture and I could finally see it in positive. Right. And, uh, you know, it's it's just such a, a great thing to learn immediately how bad my picture looks. Yeah. <laughs> so that I can make changes, you know, and chimping is wonderful. But the the thing that drives me nuts is people who are in a portrait session and they're they're making a they, they take two shots and then they look down at their screen and then they look back up and take two more shots and then kind of scrunch their eyebrows looking at their screen and then take two more. Um, whatever you do, like, first of all, you should know that the picture is going to look great. Uh, like if, if your subject is posing for you, you are ready to make a picture and you don't need to look at it. You don't need to see the, the exposure or anything. When that person is posing, they are on and you should be ready Yeah. Mm-hmm. for So don't even ask them to pose yet and just say, give me a second. I'm, I'm getting the, I'm playing with my black box here. Um, and you can scrunch your eyebrows all you want when you're playing with your black box. But as soon as that person is in your photograph for real. You look at that screen and you better smile every time you look at it. Yes. You have the lens cap on, but you better smile. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Let's do it again. Well, and I, I mean, I chimp, I chimp, like I have like a very personal preference of this because <laughs> I was harped on so much for people um, saying you should never look at the back of their camera. A real photographer never looks at the back oh, of their camera. Goodness, yeah. Um, that whole thing. And, um, I had to, I, I still have to a lot in the beginning because I, um, I have 
pretty horrible vision and I'm allergic to contacts. And so I can really only see when I'm looking through the viewfinder, it's all blurry, all mm. of it. Wow. And so I have to take a few shots, look at the back and go, you know, from the few inches from my face to the camera, then it's all clear. And I can go, oh yeah, that's exactly how I want it to look. We're good. And then I go back to shooting. And while I'm shooting, it's a lot of blurry shapes. It is not all clear. Um, and I got used to that a lot because when I'm shooting underwater, even though I can technically wear glasses on land underwater, I can't, I'd have to get like the certain the yeah. specific prescription goggles and it's a whole thing. And even then you're still looking through the camera's viewfinder and the lens and the medium. So even if you can see clearly underwater, you never really can see your subject clearly. Yeah. So a lot of times you have to do these test shoots, come up from the water and look at the back of the camera and make sure that everything is how it's supposed to look because it's literally impossible to see it through the viewfinder. And so in the beginning, I, I still do that on land because I can't work. I don't have glasses and I just don't see very clearly. <laughs> so I have to look uh. the back of the camera, make sure it's in focus. But the rule is once I know it's in focus, everything's set, that's how I want it to be. The only other time I look at the back is if I just took a shot that I'm seriously excited about and I want to show the model because then they get excited Yeah, and it's, you know, then you, you get that energy from the shoot. But otherwise, you're absolutely right. You figure out what it needs to be and then um, don't look at the camera every time. Keep that connection with your either your subject if you're shooting portraits or if you're shooting landscapes. Um, yeah, I think it's a matter of kind of knowing what you're doing and, and making sure making sure you get it right the first time and then and then you're good to go. Yeah, just don't don't lose what you're doing at the expense yeah. of what you did. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Because if and if you're shooting wildlife, you know, you, you might miss out on some or sports, you might miss out on some opportunities because you're paying too much attention exactly. to back your camera. Yeah, do it the one or two times, make sure you got the exposure, whatever. But just dedicate yourself to that shot, to, to that subject. And you know, you might have some that you think you end up throwing away, but you probably get have some that you're are keepers because you were in the moment more. And that's that's definitely my take on chimping is it can be it can be overdone. And that's all we want to kind of recognize is when we're doing it too much. So I know I fall victim to it most when I'm taking photos of my kids. Sure. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, it's so adorable. And I look at the back and then I'll miss them do something better. And it's just. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. You can definitely do it too much. All right. Another term, Jenna, we'll have you take the lead on this one is just the, the term that says workflow. So to you, what, what does workflow, uh, what does workflow mean? I guess. So workflow is, it's really very subjective. It's, it's essentially what a, whatever a photographer does the second they take their photos, upload them to the computer, process them however much, you know, however they want, and then export them for uh, printing. It's pretty much encompasses that entire process. And Every photographer is different. It depends a lot on the genre. When I used to shoot weddings, it was a lot of uploading into Lightroom, a lot of kind of mass editing through Lightroom and barely pulling into Photoshop to make maybe a couple adjustments, maybe some skin retouching or something like that. And then, you know, exporting and through everything through Lightroom. I grew up, I really learned to edit in Photoshop though. So that's kind of my baby. So now since my work is, I, my photography is essentially 100% in the fine art realm now. So I am only uploading, you know, I'll upload to Lightroom to cull through images because it's incredibly convenient. And then once I get maybe the seven that I'm using from a shoot, because I'm not, I'm not mass, you know, I, I don't have hundreds like a wedding would have. I take those seven and all of those go into Photoshop. And then it's okay. a lot of time spent on each one in Photoshop there are probably a lot of things in Photoshop that I could do in Lightroom. I just like Photoshop better. It's what I learned on. It's what my first love was as far as editing goes. So that's where it goes to. Um, it depends a lot on how, you know, how you print your images and what that image is going to be used for as to how you export it. Um, saving it to print to send to a printer is sometimes a different kind of color profile than if you're putting it on your website. So it really depends what you shoot, how you're going to cull your images, how you're planning on editing them, what you're going to do with them in the end um, to as what your workflow is. But your workflow basically just describes that entire process. Yeah, the entire say. process for what you need to do with your images, basically. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So Levi, take us uh, down the idea of what a radio trigger is. Yeah, so a radio trigger is for controlling your flash and... 
It can be for a speed light, allowing you to move your flash away from your camera, which I highly recommend. Or it can be for a monoblock strobe, a studio strobe that, um, that allows you to, to control that without having a cord running into your camera. There, there's a little, there, on, on some camera bodies, there's still a little PC plug on the front left side of your camera that's got a, a screw cap on it. And that is for a cord to plug in there and then plugs into your flash. And it could be like a 50 foot long cord. <laughs> and so the radio trigger is a huge boon to eliminating cords in your, in your, uh, in your work. And you can use it combined with a slave unit. And I, I would say slave is a optical trigger unit. Like I can set my flash to go off when it senses another flash going off. And so I can have, I can buy one radio trigger and use three flashes um, by having a unit on the camera and a unit on a flash. And really nice ones, that is really expensive ones, allow me to control how bright the flash is when it's you know 20 feet away from me just by adjusting a, a dial on the on the trigger on the on the controller unit at my camera. So you've got a master and a, and a slave unit. And the, the master's at the camera and the slave is over there at the on the flash. And nice ones allow you to control how bright the flash is. Cheap ones, which I highly recommend. Yes. You can walk over and change the flash. So for 20 bucks, you can get a controller and two triggers on Amazon, like Newer or Yongnuo or Cowboy Studios. And that's what I use on my Alien Bees. And they cost $20 and I buy two of them so that if one gets stepped on or dropped, um, I've got a backup, but they just, they continually work. If they're having a problem, it's just because the batteries are low. So um, I highly recommend you spend 20 bucks and get your flash away from the camera position. Like we talked about last time we were on the show, um, we talked about Rembrandt light and you just can't make it with a flash on your camera. So get a cheap radio trigger and get the flash in a great place to allow your subjects to look terrific. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So Jenna, tell us about this idea. There's another term called a fast lens. So what does that mean? Well, this is interesting because I didn't know this until maybe a year ago. Okay. I've been a photographer for 10 years. Okay. <laughs> I did not know this. Um, I knew what a fast lens was. I knew it was a, you know, a fast lens essentially means a lens with a wide aperture. So if you are shooting at, um, you've got a 50 millimeter, you know, 1.8 or, you know, whatever that is, or 1.2 or something like that, that would be a fast lens. And the reason it's called a fast lens is because you can use a quick shutter speed is essentially all it is. Because when you have these wide, wide aperture, you're letting in so much light, you can shoot it incredibly high shutter speed. You can shoot one over 8,000 if you want. And you usually have plenty of light coming in without even really having to adjust your ISO too much. So that's really all it means. It's one of those things that I just, I knew fast was wide aperture and that's it. And I never really knew why until probably about a year ago, <laughs> but that's, that's essentially what it means. Yeah. So in it's order awesome. for a lens to have that designation, and this is more just like in common you know, discussions or whatever, mm -hmm. generally it's accepted if it's an F2.8 or larger for the, for the biggest aperture that the lens can get, then it's going to be considered a fast lens. So if you have like an mm -hmm. F3.5 and F4 lens, that usually won't be termed as a fast lens when you're talking amongst your photo peers. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So here's the next one. We talked about it a little bit in, in last week's episode, and we're going to dive a little deeper into it now. And I, and I need both of your guys' uh, inputs because you definitely have different uh, ways of, of dealing with it. Uh, but depth of field, uh, I'd, I'd term that as the range of acceptably sharp focus. But there's lots of different things that affect depth of field. And so I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. Uh, so first off, Levi, help me understand what that means. The range of acceptably sharp focus. It's like when you uh, use a fast lens or even a not so fast lens, because there's three things that affect depth of field. Uh, it's when you, when you have your, your subjects eyeball in focus and their nostrils are out of focus and their ears are out of focus, or more typically, their ears are in focus and their eyeballs are out of focus. <laughs> more typically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I like how you put that. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's just that, it's that, that thickness 
of the distance from the camera that is going to be in sharp focus. So when I use a very big aperture, um, it's going to be a thinner slice of the world that's in focus. So six feet away from me is in focus and six feet, four inches away is out of focus. Okay. And that also ranges, you know, where you say it's out of focus, that is something where, um, it starts to become out of focus, right? So it's not yeah. like it's just boom, it's out of focus. It's just slightly out of focus at six feet four inches in your in your example. Well, and that depends on the lens you're using yep. and the, uh, you know the distance you're focusing, as well as like we we always talk about how the aperture makes the the depth of field, but it's also reliant on how how far away you're focusing on your subject and the the focal length of your lens so like a 12 millimeter lens a very wide angle lens has a lot of depth of field and a 300 millimeter lens makes a very shallow depth of field even at the same aperture and the same distance to your subject um yeah any is anybody yeah wrong no no, no, jenna jenna take it away from there if you guys see those, uh, you know, um, I think sometimes people, when you're a new photographer and you see these images of, say, like, you know, just a woman standing in a field and everything behind her is just that butter soft and yeah. she's in focus, that's probably at a very long lens using a, a lot of compression and a very, very wide aperture where she's in focus and everything else in, isn't. And when you combine that with compression, it just kind of creates that that butter sort of background. So, you know, that, that is, it is an absolute combination of focal length and your aperture. Like it's not just one or the other necessarily. Yeah. And, and similarly, I can, I can set my aperture to F8 and photograph a bee on a flower. Mm-hmm. The bee is in focus and the flower is out of focus on a, on a cheap kit lens, like a, a 55 to 200 or even an 18 to 55 because focusing close to the camera mm-hmm. also makes the depth of field much shallower. Yeah. So that, that brings in those two others, you know, you have a shallow depth of field and a long depth of field. And so we've been focusing on the shallow idea where you just have that thin slice of what is in focus, that plane that is in focus, you know, from, from the distance of the camera. If you do a long depth of field, that's when you're using a smaller aperture, physical size, smaller aperture or a bigger number. And that's what increases or makes your depth of field even longer. So you have more items that are in focus, a rule of thumb to use. It's not, you know, completely accurate, but a rule of thumb is to say, okay, if I'm focusing at that subject and it's, let's say it's 10 feet away, generally speaking, uh, you can look at the idea of that subject that you're focusing on is about one third into that range of acceptably sharp focus. So that means you have, you know, one X distance in front of you, whatever your aperture is set to, let's say it's set to, you know, nine feet in front of you, is in focus. So that's one foot in front of the subject, right? And so that means then the rule of thumb would be that you have two feet behind the subject that is in focus. Now it can also be pretty much 50-50. If you really want to dive deep into it, get an app like PhotoPills and you can have a depth of field calculator there or get online DOF master and you can yeah. do some depth of field calculations there as well. I also heard the rule when shooting groups of people that um, if you if you want everyone in the frame, if you're shooting like everyone at full body in the shot, that a general rule of thumb when you're starting out is to try and match your aperture to the number of people. So if there's four people, maybe shoot on like an <laughs> F4. Okay. If, if there's only two, then you can stop down to like an F2, you know, 2.8, something like that. But if yeah. you're... Yeah, but and if you're shooting like a family reunion and there's like ten people in there, then yeah, shoot at f ten or f twelve. You got to really kind of crank it up a little more. Yeah. Um. So I know if you're very first starting out and you're like, oh, what do I do? That was a that was a very general rule of thumb that someone told me, and then you'll get the hang of it, and you don't have to necessarily stick to it. But yeah, if, that, yeah, that if might you're be good. Help. Just starting. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. I like and it. Focus on the person in the front. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. When yeah. it comes to depth of field, we tend to. We tend to really focus on <laughs> focus. We tend to focus on um, the that plane, that parallel plane to the camera. That isn't necessarily all depth of field is. 
you can, there's a lot of different options for what you have. If you can do something like a tilt shift where you can have the top and bottom portion of your photograph out of focus, that's what creates that miniature effect. So you can add something like that in Photoshop or use something of a, you know, a specialty lens to do that. You can use, uh, I know lens baby makes ones that yeah, allow you to essentially that. free lens without yeah. removing it from your camera. I still take it off my camera because I'm an idiot and I shouldn't do that. But, um, you know, free lensing is basically when you take your lens off your camera and it exposes your sensor. So that's why it's bad, but it allows you to shoot through your lens at an angle where instead of the depth of field being parallel, um, to your, or I would say perpendicular, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it would be perpendicular to your camera and it's a flat depth of focus. It creates where something near to you could be out of focus and something far away could be out of focus. And it puts the subject in the in the middle in a way where sure. it could be almost like if you're shooting across their face, their mouth and one side of their face is out of focus. The other side is in focus. It's just a it's a very weird, unique kind of um, way of doing it. But you know, that's, those are definitely more non-traditional methods, but it's fun. Yeah. So if you, if you have a chance, if you're at a show or something, or your friend of yours has kind of a funky lens that does a, a weird depth of field, then I would at least try it. It's, it's a blast. I still do free lensing all the time and I probably shouldn't, but <laughs> <laughs> I still do it all the time. Cool. Yeah, my, my favorite lens are, are my favorite lenses are the lens baby edge lenses. They've got a new one. It's actually my doodad for this week is the, the lens baby edge 35. The 35 I think I have that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I love them. To, to twist, to alter the plane of focus. And you can actually see how thick the depth of field is when you do that. Yeah. It's basically commercial for Lens Baby right now, but <laughs> they're really fun. We'll, we'll send them a bill. Yeah. <laughs> the sharpest lenses I've ever used. So, yeah. Awesome. So uh, tied in with depth of field is, is this idea of hyperfocal distance. And do you guys ever use or get yourself concerned about hyperfocal distance at all? I never do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done it. I've messed with it. Um, and it's worked when I've done it. So hyperfocal is a, a depending on the lens you're using and the aperture you're using. If you focus your lens at a certain distance, then the the greatest amount of your photograph will be in focus and you focus at the distance even if your subject doesn't appear sharp in your viewfinder because your your viewfinder is showing you uh the photograph with the lens wide open and it doesn't stop down until you click the shutter and so um what you see in the viewfinder may not be in focus when you focus at 43 and a half inches in order to make this whole thing in focus. And it, I don't know, I, I feel like it, it hasn't really been worth the time most yeah. of the time. Um, this has been kind of in the same vein as when we talked about that back button focusing. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I've done it and I've been like, I don't really see the point so much of it. Like it's, it's a cool trick, I guess, but I, yeah, I, I didn't really, um, it's it really didn't really essential. do a lot for me to, to suck me into it. Yeah, it's it's really quite essential when you're when you're using a view camera, like a, a four by five large format camera. Ah, there you go. Um, but for for a digital SLR, it like if you're at the point where your compositions are so great and your your exposure and your finishing is so terrific, that hyperfocal distance is the thing that's holding you back, man. Can we get you on the yeah. show? <laughs> sure. Why are you listening to this show? <laughs> so just to make sure we define it, hopefully as clearly as possible uh, for those who may not know what it is, uh, it's the point where you place the focus. So you mentioned that, uh, Levi, where you, you, you place that focal point somewhere, but your goal is uh, to allow the depth of field for whatever aperture you're at, but you allow the depth of field to include the infinity focus area. So everything behind that focus point is in focus. And then the depth of field will reach in front of that focus point too. And so that is the maximum space that you can have from infinity to a particular point in front of your camera. All of that is in focus then. And the I guess the way that I would see this being useful for a landscape photographer is if you were needing to do a focus stack. And so figure out your hyperfocal distance or at least estimate it, get close to it. And then, you know, you can start there with, with shooting at that one shot that includes all those items in focus. And then you would move it 
closer to you, take a shot, move it closer to you as, as far as moving that focus point closer to you. And then you get everything in focus and then you can go to Photoshop and blend those to do a focus stack. So to me, that's about the only reason See, I could think okay. to, I would want to use it. See, I was thinking it was like the, the film photographer's focus stack, because if you're focus stacking, you don't need to do this. Pretty much because... Yeah, it's so uh, easy to do anyway. And if you end up getting one extra frame just because you didn't calculate your hypofocal distance, who cares? <laughs> because, yeah. yeah, because it doesn't cost you any extra money to take that extra shot. So yeah, on my on my older Nikon lenses, um, with a with a manual focus or a aperture ring, yeah, they also had a bracketed spot on the focal um, on the focus gauge, I guess, where it, where it's showing you how far away you're focusing, right? And it was it has a little infinity sign and then two orange bars that come out and say everything. Like when you focus at this distance, you put that at the infinity sign and then everything that falls within those brackets is going to be in focus. Yeah. So uh, if you have like, a, if you set your camera to F 16, it's showing you these two brackets along the focus ring where those are going to be in focus. And then exactly. you just set one of those on the infinity ring and then everything else. And you can just get a gauge on that focus ring where it's going to come into focus. Some Zeiss lenses still have those even in today's lenses, yeah. but usually you don't see those on today's lenses. One thing, like I found it useful. I had a, a 14 to 24 millimeter, millimeter lens for my full frame Nikons. And I knew that if I focused at like 38 inches at F11, that was my hyperfocal for that lens. Yeah. And so, and then I also knew that if I, if I reached my fingers out with my arms straight right over my lens and focused on my fingers, that was 38 inches. All right, cool. <laughs> and so <laughs> I had a, a quick shortcut for that lens to do it. And I, it like trying to do it with a telephoto lens or anything. It's, it's just not useful. No, because it was well, just not important. Yeah. So, I, I, I yeah. totally concur for sure. So let's move on to the next one. It's quality of light. And so uh, Jenna, help us. What does quality of light mean to you? It's funny because it's, it's, it essentially refers to just the nature of the light. So sure. if you hear a photographer say this is, oh, this is decent quality light over here. Uh, but I think, I think the thing to really keep in mind is that it is so subjective because sure. one photographer's nightmare shooting condition is another photographer's jackpot. Right. So right. You know, to for me to walk into a studio and there's just a ton of harsh light, um, I'm not a big fan of that. Someone else will be a fan. So when you say quality of light, it, it, there's a lot more to whether it's good or bad. Essentially, you've got to say, is it, is it soft light? Is it harsh lights? Is it diffused light? You know, there's all these different kinds of light for you to recognize. And that's essentially what it's referring to. So once you kind of start learning what your preferences are, that's when I think it comes into play. And I, yeah, I just, I, I think it, it's one of those things where, you know, I mean, I, I've said it before, you have to really experiment, but every time you come into a situation, you're like, ah, the light is crap in here. Maybe for your skill level or for what you're looking for, it's crap, but it's right. probably not crap light. There probably is something right. you can do with it. Even if it's just straight fluorescent light from overhead and you're going, ah, what am I going to do with this? There is probably something you can do with it in an interesting way. Uh, to make it unique. I know that I've, I've shot documentary work before where a window is open and there's that blue light coming in from the window. And then there's that warm lamp light next to the subject. And your, your first instinct is to look at that and go, this light is crap. It's different colors. It's coming from these weird angles. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And the fact is you can go outside and shoot inside the window and it makes this, you know, beautiful frame with all the warm light in the middle and, and blue light on the outside. You can shoot through the lamplight to your subject and they're illuminated in the back from the blue light. So there's still things you can do with it, even if you think it's not ideal light from your circumstances. Cool. Uh, Levi, anything on that? Um, yeah, just additionally, it's largely related to the size of the light in relation to your subject. Sure. And so when you... Oh. And distance. Uh, and di yeah, exactly. In, in so that's where the in relation to your subject comes into play. Because if I've got an eight foot light and it's 50 feet away, it's still like if I hold out my arm and, and squish it with my fingers, it's only two inches tall. Right. <laughs> but if I put my subject right next to that light, then it's enormous. Similarly, with those those fluorescent lights overhead, if if I just get right next to them, then now they're a beautiful soft light instead of being a... Uh, 
uh, a specular kind of harsh light in several spots. Um, LED lights are the worst thing on earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, because now you've like, there's, there's a couple of different kinds of LEDs, of course, but a lot of those LED panels are rows of LEDs. Right. And if you hold your hand up and cast a shadow on the wall, you see like a hundred different shadows. Oh, I know. Of your hand. It's and those are terrible. It's annoying. Yeah. It's so annoying. You've got to soften those things four or five times to get any, any quality out of them. And uh, so you can you can change the nature of the light by shining it through something like a diffuser or through a white umbrella or, or reflecting it off of something else, like reflecting off a white wall and, and, shine, and then it, it shines back on your subject in a much softer manner. Um, and you think I think you have to keep in mind, too. I mean, the first time I remember shooting in a gymnasium and going, what the heck am I going to do in here? Like it was just gymnasiums are not pretty yeah. light. Like, let's all just admit that. And it was just this stupid, you know, it was just awful lighting. And I realized I could get really low and put the subject in front of like one of those bright lights up top. And it looked like they were in a stadium. It looked amazing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it, it was really just a matter of finding what you could do with that and turning that around from, you know, crappy quality to something that was actually pretty decent. Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. So this next one is the bear pattern, and that is, <laughs> you, you, you chuckled, Levi. <laughs> why, why are you chuckling? This isn't funny. <laughs> it's funny that anybody cares. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's just, this is about yeah. photo jargon. That's, maybe no one does care, but I just find this interesting because it is the it foundation is. for everything we do. It is. And then I've got something to add to it. Okay. After All right. So this is the array of color filters that are placed on the photo sites in your camera sensor. And so, Thanks, and so each. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best joke Levi's ever heard. <laughs> so each row trying to concentrate here, uh, each row is alternating colors. So you start, you might start out with like a red, green, red, green, and so on. And it just alternates back and forth in that row. So each pixel one is going to be sensitive only to red light because it has a red filter over it the next one has a green filter over it so it's only going to be sensitive to green light and then the next row starts green blue green blue and so on so you get this pattern this checkerboard pattern it ends up being twice as many green as either red or blue on this on the sensor and it was invented by bryce bear he was a kodak employee and he invented this pattern in 1974 and he was researching ways to figure out how to capture color in a two-dimensional array of colorblind sensors. And I just thought that was kind of interesting because, number one, it was a Kodak invention. And it was way back in 1974. The patent was filed in 1975. But, you know, Kodak is Kodak now. And it's still the foundation for pretty much everything we do with our digital cameras. Yeah, unless you shoot a Sigma camera. Right. If you have a Sigma camera that has the Foveon or if you have a Fuji camera, which has the X-Trans. Right. Which are incredible sensors and they, they make a functional difference. Like the Foveon sensor, instead of having lines uh, with alternating colors, they, they have three different sensors and each one is, is completely red, completely blue and completely green. And it, I've, I've used those quite a bit and I am seriously jealous of that technology. If I was a, like a fine art photographer, whether portraiture or, um, or landscape, I would absolutely use Sigma cameras because the detail and the color range is just incredible, but they're not like super great for making event pictures at right. a thing, you know? So I've got a camera that does, that's a generalist, but that right. camera is, is incredible because of, because it's a fundamentally different picture coming in. And sure. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. Uh, there has been a rumor that with their L mount alliance with, uh, what is it, Leica and Panasonic, oh. that they might come out with a maybe a full frame uh, Foveon camera body. That would be pretty cool, huh? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe, and maybe I'm just, you know, perpetuating a false rumor. I don't know. I mean, I can't even tell you how good the pictures I made with that camera just turned out. Like, 
except the, the problem was I was, I was using it. They, they had their own raw file and nobody supported it. Right. <laughs> now they'll actually shoot a DNG and it works and everything. But the last time I used them, um, I could only shoot the, the TIFFs or JPEGs. And even so, even those compressed files coming out of the camera were just so good. Cool. Um, because they're, they published a, they published a tool for reading the files, but it was horrible. <laughs> cool. Well, I had a thing here about file formats, but I probably think we might should skip that because we have other items to talk about that are more photography centric. So let's skip down to this idea of sync speed. I think you had mentioned that a little bit ago, uh, oh, yeah. Levi, with uh, the sy- idea of synchronization speed. So take it away on that. Okay. Yeah. I love, I love sync speed. This is one of my specialities. Um, <laughs> your, your sh- camera has a shutter that opens and closes and exposes the sensor to light coming in. Um, and when you use a flash that needs to be in sync, it needs to be synchronized with the opening of the shutter. And if you've ever used a flash and ended up with a black bar p- across part of your photograph, that's because your, sh- your flash wasn't going off when the shutter was totally open. And so when your camera, when your shutter is totally open and the flash goes off at that time, um, that's when they're in sync. And it's the shutter is made of two parts. It's got, it's got a curtain that comes down and then it and opens to reveal the shutter. And then the other curtain follows it down and closes the shutter. And when you're using a very fast shutter speed, those are not, it's never totally exposed. It'll be like, it starts opening and then it starts closing at the same time. And you just have this, this little slit of light traveling across the sensor. And that can be really confusing in an audio format. So in the show notes, I have a fantastic video done by the slow-mo guys where, where they have, they, they show you specifically what's going on and they, it's really cool because it's like 10,000 frames per second and then they slow it down and you can see exactly what's going on. And what the difference is between when you're at the sync speed, how that first curtain opens all the way up and then the second curtain sl- shuts behind it. And it's really cool in that slow-mo because it's, everything's just slamming and shaking around in the, in the camera. But you know, right. for us, we're that just like, awesome. it's a click, you know, whatever. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, you go on up to one eight thousandth of a second. And so you you watch the mirror lift up and out of the way. They use a 7D uh, camera. So the, the mirror lifts up and out of the way and it kind of bangs there and sits like it feels like forever. And then finally the shutter starts moving again. And then when you're at the eight thousandth of a second, it gets down like maybe 10% of the of the entire frame, maybe less. Uh, and then the that rear curtain starts following it. And that's why we want to do that sync speed, because if you're at that eight thousandth of a second, that flash goes off, you're only going to expose your flash for like one tenth of the entire frame just because of that delay uh, that happens, if you want to call it a delay, um, for, for how that it takes time for that thing to open all the way. But that other curtain starts following it already. And so yeah, that's what gives you that really fast shutter speed is just the traveling of yeah. that curtain. And there's only there's only this little slit that's open. Yeah that whole time. And so a standard flash isn't going to illuminate your entire sensor during that time because, because it's only a slit. So that's where you get into the high speed sync, right? That your camera can work with typically an on-brand flash, although certain others like, um, like Fotix, um, or, or other brand specific flashes will do high speed sync with your camera. And when they do that, instead of firing one time, they, they fire like a strobe and fire repeatedly during that eight thousandth of a second in order to fill in each slot on the sensor as, as that each, each area of the sensor as that little slice of openness travels across the sensor. Slice um, of openness. I love it. <laughs> That's why I should title this, this episode yeah, slice of openness. <laughs> But, but you, you uh, mentioned an eight thousandth of a second, but it still takes that full time for it to actually travel. So the time it takes to expose still is in the neighborhood of two fiftieth of a second. But the actual time that light is allowed to strike the sensor is only eight thousandth because that strip, that slit is so small. Um, I'm not jiving with you there. Let's well, see. <laughs> it, it, it takes time for that curtain to move. 
is yes. what I'm saying. So just because it's an eight thousandth of a second, so that shut that um, that high speed sync needs to flash multiple times over the full two fiftieth or whatever the sync speed is of that camera because that slit is constantly moving. And while the exposure time light on sensor is only eight thousandth of a second, it still takes time for that to travel the distance of the of the full sensor. Well, but it takes an eight thousandth of a second. Go watch the go watch the thing. Right. <laughs> it'll, it'll make sense once you watch the video, because it, it does not the the shutter is is unable to it only it, it can only move so fast. It's just the the width the width of that slit is what causes it to chop off the light. So the exposure is very very oh, tiny. I got you. So it's effectively yeah. an eight thousandth of a second. Yes. on any spot, but yes. it still takes. The full time. I got you. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Additionally, <laughs> there's also a huge trade-off because the flash you're using, you're, you're losing power immensely. Yes. When you use high speed sync because it's strobing through that time instead of giving you one powerful flash, and so you're going to have to move your light a lot closer than you expect in order to to make it work. And um, like when you're if you're using speed lights, you'll hear it go. Yeah, that means the batteries are maxed out and it is not yet recharged. You need to wait for that single solitary beat uh, to tell you that it is recharged and now you can shoot again. Yeah. So um, a good a good thing to do if you're trying to do high speed sync and really catch a lot of action, if you can increase the ISO, you're going to reduce the amount of flashlight you need, and that'll make your batteries and your recycle time a lot faster. A lot faster. In your sure. flash. Yep. So that's the high-speed sync. Let's talk about rear curtain sync. You had mentioned that a little bit too with the sparklers and the like. Uh, Jenna, take us away on this idea of rear curtain sync. Well, I, you know, this is... Rear curtain sync is... I, I've really only used it for any kind of artistic effect. Sure. Um, Levi probably may, has maybe used it for more of a professional effect than I have. Um, I, I, this is really when you can want to get the subject in focus, but you still want some of that long exposure kind of look with a light. At least that's what I've used it for. And so it's essentially saying that you're going to use a slow shutter speed. So that, so that flash, when you, when you use that flash, it's going to happen either at the beginning or at the end. Cause I think there's, there's Levi will be no better than I, but you can flash the beginning or you can flash the end. You can choose which one you want, but the flash itself is basically acting as the shutter speed for that portion of the camera. It's lighting your subject so fast that they will be entirely in focus. And then because you have a longer shutter speed, whatever else is in scene is now going to be seen as kind of a long exposure. So those shots, when you kind of see the bride and groom that are hugging or kissing and they're surrounded by sparklers, that is a lot of times done with this method where you will flash and you get them in focus and then they run around with the sparklers and that ends up being the long exposure stuff. So you can kind of combine both of them. Levi, am I, am I saying that right? Cause that's essentially, no, I love, yeah. I'm I not a big flash person. I, I use pretty minimal um, flash, but when I do, it's usually used the wrong way or <laughs> something a little more artistic. Well, and that brings in our next one of which is slow sync, which is the same idea. It's just what we're looking at is when does the flyer fat? <laughs> I can't speak right. Let me untie my tongue. When does the flash fire? Uh, does it fire at the beginning of the exposure or the end of the exposure? And if you're looking at rear curtain sync, then it's when you're you're firing the flash at the end of the exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And rear curtain can also be called second curtain. Right. And right. there's also front or first curtain. Yep. And, and that means the flash fires and then you've got three seconds. Or if you're doing rear curtain or second curtain, it's three seconds and then the flash fires. And that's typically what you're going to want to use is rear curtain. Like in, in most situations, if your camera is capable, that is, if you're not using a Canon, then <laughs> you want to use rear curtain as often as possible because um, you'll get the blur and then your subject will be sharp. If you do front curtain, your subject will be sharp, but then they'll blur through themselves. And it, it's harder to make it look the way you think it's, you want it to look. Um, ah, there you go. But I, I use this all the time. I, in fact, I just leave my curtain set to rear curtain, my shutter set to rear curtain, because it only matters when you're doing a slow flash uh, right. 
situation uh, when you're dragging the shutter, which is which is both of these things. You're you're dragging the shutter, and that means having the shutter open for a long time, and then adding a flash. And so it only makes a difference when you're using a long shutter speed, like a twentieth of a second or slower right. or longer. <laughs> so like one second would be long, but a twentieth of a second is long. Um, a fiftieth of a second, it's not going to matter that much typically, depending on the ambient light. But um, but it's such a fun way. Like imagine standing on a street corner and there's traffic driving by, and you've got a, a subject standing there, and you do like a three second exposure, so the lights of the traffic are all streaked, right. and then your subject is flashed nice and sharp. Um, that's really fun, and it's and, and it'll more, be at the front of those lights then. It'll be in front of those lights. Yeah. And yeah, it'll, it'll be on top of those lights for the most part. Yeah. And then you can add movement to your subject, allowing him or her to, to shuffle or twist and, uh, and get some really cool effects. I, I just taught a class on this. Um, and then you can also move the camera additionally and get an, another kind of effect. And it's, now, there's, it's a lot of fun. Maybe, you know, cause we were, we were talking about this at, at the, actually we were talking about this as a retreat. Cause I think there's three different, there's three different terms, right? There's either one where yes, your camera is still and your subject is moving and that creates the blur. There's a second one where your subject is still and your camera, the photographer is moving and that creates the blur. And then the third one is when the subject is still, the photographer is still and you're zooming in and out. Okay. Yeah, you that, can also that's do that. called something, right? Uh, I don't know what it is called. If it is, yeah, I, we couldn't we couldn't think of it either. I would just yeah. call I know it a, this a, is... a zoom during exposure. But if if mm-hmm. you're looking for a one word term, I don't know it. No. Yeah, I <laughs> no, I can no one I know remembers it. I, I thought it was called something. Maybe I just think it was, and it, there actually is a name for it, and someone will make it up someday. Um, Maybe we should make that it up right now. This is a really cool. This yeah. is a cool effect, though. You know, for Fourth of July with yeah. all the fireworks yes. and the sparklers. Exactly. I mean, this is the time to do it. Yeah. Exactly. Now the. The reason I said, unless you're shooting a Canon is because Canon makes it very, very difficult to do a uh, rear curtain sync, second curtain sync off camera. If you've got a speed light on your camera, you can do it, but, um, you have to have only certain Canon flashes will do it off camera. Like only one, only the, the latest and greatest. And which is dumb because you think that was controlled by the camera body. And it's, it's been done for like 150 years. And so it's, it's so frustrating to me that Canon limits this like any other, any other camera, you can use those cheap cowboy studios and make it work cowboy studio triggers and, and make it work off camera. Um, so I'm sorry for, for Canon users. I know you're going to write to me, but (laughs) I'm right. I've, I've done it a lot and, uh, and it's super frustrating, but it's so much fun. My favorite is to do like, whenever you're moving the camera, the key is to move the camera first, start, start a motion and then fire while you're, after you've already started your motion. So like I'm sitting here in my chair going in circles, cause it's really fun to have some lights in the background behind your subject and then start doing a swirl with your camera, just a, a little swirl oscillating your camera and then I'm doing it from my legs so that my whole body is, is keeping the swirl going. You focus first, you start this movement and then you finish the picture and it lights up your subject and they've got these swirly blurry lights behind them and they're super sharp. It's, it's just a really fun thing. Well, another thing that was, as you're talking about, you know, the speed of an object or something like that, you know, if you're photographing rain falling pretty much, if you're at 60th of a second, you know, give or take a little bit, but you're going to get a nice streak of that raindrop, right? And mm-hmm. it'll give you some of that motion blur of the rain actually falling. But if you were to then use a rear curtain sink and flash that at the end of that 60th of a second, you're going to get that nice little rivulet of water, that little sparkle with its trail. Mm-hmm. And that can be kind of cool too. Yeah, little comets shooting through the sky. Yeah, yeah exactly. Stars are falling. All right, so let's close this out with our doodads. Levi, let's start off with you. You bet. I've got uh, the, the, the new lens baby lens. The Edge 35 is marvelous. The lens itself is only 250 bucks, but if you don't already have the compo- composer, the compro- <laughs> <laughs> composer pro body, All then right. 
going to need that. So it's, it's a two, it's a two piece thing and you buy the body and then you buy the optics that go inside it. And they've got a whole range of optics that do all these different cool effects. My favorites, like I said, are the edge and they allow you to change that plane of focus and tilt it in relation to this, to the sensor. And it is so powerful and cool. And my kids are screaming in the background. Sorry about that. <laughs> Well, that sounds interesting. I will, I will vouch for that lens, baby, because it, it cool. is really fun. It is really fun to play with. It's one of those things you just start kind of playing around with it, and you're like, what can I photograph? Like, everything looks different. It's fun. Nice. So, Jenna, how about yourself? Um, well, yeah, I just, I mean, I guess I mentioned it earlier, but I'll I'll say it's the Young Nuo. I never say that right, but it's Young Nuo, Y-O-N-G-N-U-O, and it's a wireless remote control, wireless remote trigger. And essentially all this is because there's a bunch of different wireless remotes that you can um, basically just plug into your camera and then you can um, walk away from your camera and you just click the button in the, in your hand right there and it'll take the photo. This is what I used to use for self portraits all the time. I love young Nuo because first of all, they have they're wireless and they're really strong. So you can click through walls, you can click around corners. You don't have to point wow. it right at the sensor. So it's really convenient. And, um, you can still press it halfway down. It still has that sensitivity. So you can focus it on yourself, autofocus, and then click the shutter down if you want. And, um, unless you just you're using have back to make focus. sure <laughs> <What's that? laughs> unless you're using back button focus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you have to, you have to make sure you get the right one for your camera. So they, they, um, it's the same brand. It's the same, you know, I think RF 602RX or 602C. There's all kinds of different ones. Just go to Amazon and type in Y-O-N-G Nuo uh, remote trigger remote control. They're up to like a hundred meters away. And, um, but get the one for your camera. Cause I remember getting one and shipping it to my house and being all excited. And it was for Nikon and it didn't plug Ooh. in correctly. Oops. So just get the, get, make sure you get the right one. Cool. Uh, the one I have is a color checker passport photo two. And for some reason, I'm thinking I may have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the episode, but the, the reason I wanted to, uh, bring this up again is I'm going to try, hopefully next week I can get around to it. Um, they actually have a thing now where if you use, uh, what is it? Capture one, uh, which I just recently bought, you can actually create a profile to calibrate your camera. And so you have consistent color coming out of your camera. And so I'm just going to explore that a little bit. I'm, I, I love getting as perfect color as I can. And mm -hmm. I guess by the term perfect, I really mean predictable. And so <laughs> not, not that it's always just right, but if it's predictable, then we can make adjustments and, and then it becomes just right. So I'm going to start playing around with that and see what I can do. But it's a nice, uh, it's just a color checker chart where it has like 30 some color swatches on it. And then the software will read that and say, oh, you know, that's a little bit off. Here's how it's going to be made right. And that is what's good for this camera and lens combination in that lighting in which you were in. So it's highly specific to your shooting situation as well, though. So anyway. Yeah, that's, I, that's I, super interesting. I use that with Lightroom and um, I use it on all my shoots, especially anytime I'm doing products because sure. it helps you recreate the colors properly. But it, <laughs> at the same time, it only matters if you're printing because right. everybody else's device shows a different color anyway. Absolutely. And you can certainly do that in Lightroom and any other image editor with just, you know, calibrating the white balance using the, the gray swatches on there. But this, they've gone a little further and they're actually connecting with Capture One and they're doing a much uh, more fine-tuned analysis. So it'll be yeah, interesting to see how it goes. It sounds really complicated. So I'm, I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. In Lightroom, you um, you export through the plugin, and then it returns a custom color profile for you. So it, it does the same thing. Oh, okay. With Adobe Suite stuff too. Oh, okay, I'll have to look into that as well. I actually haven't looked into that. Cool. All right, so we have some reminders for you guys, and that is, of course, the home of the show is masterphotographypodcast.com. and also find us in the Facebook groups. We've got over 8,500 members, I think, which is just awesome. So thank you for joining up and being a part of the community online there. And that's where a lot of these uh, items uh, that we talked about today, uh, they, they were generated with ideas from listeners. So I really appreciate that. 
And so you will have to answer a question. So that is one of the hosts or guest hosts of the podcast. So certainly Jenna, if you were to say Jenna or Levi, myself, and then the rest of the podcast members are certainly good as well. So uh, whichever, whatever works for you and answering that question, we get at least as many people asking to join that do not answer questions. And so my thumb then slips over that decline button. But so if you want to join the group, please make sure you answer that question. And then we're also having a little bit of a Instagram account. So at Master Photography Podcast, you can find us there. Uh, for my work, you can find everything related to me at my website, brentbergherm.com, where I've got uh, some workshops listed, uh, the print course that I had mentioned, uh, certainly my other podcast, the one that I do, Latitude Photography Podcast. That is where we focus on outdoor and travel photography. So anything landscape, outdoor related and travel photos related. Jenna, where can they find you online? Um, my my website is just jennamartinphotography.com and I'm on Instagram at jennamartinphoto. And then I also host the Creative Chaos podcast, which is pretty much everything on the art side of photography. It kind of focuses on creativity and artistic careers as a whole. But since I am, I am a fine art photographer and I do a lot of writing for a living, I would say it's pretty fine art photography and writing heavy. Awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's over. It's a, there's another, there's two podcasts that are under creative chaos name and mine is the creative chaos podcast. Okay. Um, and that's over on iTunes. Very good. And Levi, how about yourself? Um, I am at uh, levisim.com and I write at photofocus.com as well. And um, you'll find me on Instagram at photolevi or my outdoor and, and hunting uh, profile on Instagram is outdoorslevi. So did you say that twice? Photolevi, outdoorslevi. Yep. No, you got yeah. it. Yep. All right. <laughs> Very good. Thanks. Well, Jenna and Levi, I really appreciate you being here for two episodes, uh, two in a row here. That's awesome. Appreciate you being here and spending time with us talking about all these awesome, the understanding these, these awesome terms that we're always dealing with in photography. So I just really much, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, this was, this was a blast. It's fun to talk about this kind of stuff, especially looking back now, you know, remembering when I first started out, how overwhelming and confusing a yes. lot of this stuff was. So it's nice to be able to kind of hopefully break it down and say, it's not that bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I loved it. This was, this was a lot of fun. And it, it always reminds me when I listen to this pod, kind of podcast, I'm always yelling at the radio. Right. Because uh, people are always forgetting things, but I think we covered absolutely everything possible. Yeah. We of course <laughs> yeah, did. Someone was yelling <laughs> at some point. I'm sure. <laughs> All right, everyone, thank you so much for being here as well, uh, being listeners and supporting the show through your feedback and your commentary. And if uh, you haven't done so recently, I invite you to share this episode with a friend. If you found something useful, share it with a friend and let's spread the love of all this photography goodness. And we will see you again in another seven days. 